Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. Hello and welcome to the 44th episode of the Morrissey Exchange. Today we look more deeply into our third component of the asset allocation series, cash and fixed interest. Certainly not the sexiest of the four broad asset classes, but probably the one that affords the greatest comfort and protection to investors. We're joined today by Mr. Cam Duncan, who is the co-head of the Shuren Partners Income Strategies team. You may recall Cam from our discussion in November 2021 where we were discussing the pending interest rate move and inflation, which ended up being quite accurate. Today, I'd like to look a little closer at the asset class itself and its role in a well-diversified portfolio. Welcome, Cam. Hi, Ben. Um, as I've had you on before, I won't ask you about your career to date. Uh, we mm-hmm. already know that. It's, it's wonderful yep. and esteemed. So let's start off with interest rates and inflation again. Where will the RBA stop or have they already stopped? Yeah, it's look, it's an interesting question, Ben. And, um, you know, there's plenty of commentary out there about it. From my perspective, it looks as though there is the potential still to get one or two more hikes. Obviously, we paused this month. We're up at 3.6% now. And, you know, it sort of looks like we have seen peak inflation, uh, you know, year on year, December, we were 8.4%, January down to 74 and then February to the February year, 6.8%. So, um, you know, it looks like inflation has peaked, but of course the risk is, I guess, you know, we, we were discussing in our morning meeting this morning that oil looks like it could sort of move back up through $100. You've got all these people coming off fixed rate mortgages. I think there was, there was a piece in the press today about NAB's fixed rate book and, you know, how much of that's rolling off in the next quarter. So there's all that to come. There's still a lot of pressures out there in terms of costs living expenses so they've you know the rba's got to weigh all that up and but I, I think the thing that probably really tips it is the employment numbers you know we've got really full employment there's a, a large inflationary aspect to that so unfortunately i think we do get one or two more if you if you lean into what our cio crabby's been talking about in reference to the phillips curve and you know yeah. he talks about the unemployment rates and the growth not actually being as connected uh, or sorry i should say inflation not being as connected as what other people suggest do you subscribe to that theory as well oh, Oh, look, you know, Crab- Crabby's a more learned man than I am in terms of uh, economics and macro. So in-, in a sense, I'll, I mean, you know, correlations always break down. They just do. But at the end of the day, you know, one of the RBA's mandates is full employment. And we've got that. So that's not something they've got to worry about in a sense. So so I think that gives them the latitude to um, to continue tightening. I suppose the other issue is they've really escalated the um, the immigration projections yeah. too for the next few years. So that's going to ensure that yeah. the holiday is pretty full as well. So where are we today? Today's the 19th. We're going to have another RBA meeting early next month. Do you expect another rise there? I do, because I, I don't think the US is, uh, they're, they're not finished yet either. You know, they've, they've got, there's the potential for more rises there, I think, than, than here. And then you've got the whole sort of discussion about Aussie dollar vis-a-vis US dollar, you know, which, which isn't the be-all and end-all, but, you know, in, in a sense, it's a de facto tightening if you don't tighten anyway. Yeah. So, 
given what the currency, you know, our currency would, would weaken and therefore uh, imports become more expensive. So it's sort of, you know, you, you, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place on a global stage, I think. Based on the work that the RBA's done to date and the, and the pain that investors are, and sorry, consumers, I should say, are feeling already. Mm-hmm. What do you think the inflation number looks like over the coming months? I, th- I think you could still get some um, some reasonably high prints. You know, you're going to get 8.4% year to date. Probably not. But, you know, I went to a presentation yesterday that PIMCO put on. Pretty interesting discussion, actually. And their um, portfolio manager there who, who manages multi-billion dollar uh, fixed interest portfolio, they're still pretty cautious in terms of risks vis-a-vis oil and other cost pressures. And, you know, they're still not going boots and all into going long interest rate duration at the moment. Whilst they think it makes sense to be exposed to attractive looking government bonds out there longer dated, they're still uh, at, at a lower interest rate duration than the index at the moment. So I think, you know, there's still a fair bit of caution out there, I think, in relation to inflation. That's interesting, actually. We might flesh that out later. Given the backdrop of of inflation, how would you structure an extremely broad-based asset allocation if we were to, you know, lead into what you were just saying there? First and foremost, would you be overweight? What sectors or what assets and underweight what sectors and what assets? Look, I think there's no question we've we've increased our weight to fixed interest because on a risk adjusted return it is it is looking pretty attractive now just to put that in context you know coming into um, the big bond sell off because we're not beholden to in any sort of index really we're sort of more absolute return we've got return objectives for our SMAs that we run we basically had zero pretty much close to zero interest rate duration because we could because it just appeared to us that it, you know it was crazy taking an interest rate duration bet when rates were so close to zero. So that being what it was, I mean, you've seen, you know, what did we have last year? We had eight rate hikes and we've had two this year. So we've had 10 in total in the space of you know, less than a year. It's been a, an unprecedented high velocity of rate increases. And so I think now you, you just look at the absolute level of rates. I mean, you know, a 10-year government bond here in Australia is now sort of circa 3.6%. It's starting to look pretty attractive. And if you go and look at sort of high quality corporate debt pieces outside of that, you're getting an even higher return. So we think it does make sense. And we've done this ourselves to to allocate uh, more to longer dated bonds. Having said all of that, it's, it, it is an interesting dynamic at the moment. You know, we were talking about it this morning, obviously, with volatility now, the VIX index going under 17%. You're sort of having a bit of a risk on equity rally here at the moment. Does it last? I'm not sure. You know, it looks like we're going to have weaker economic growth going forward, certainly in the short to medium term. So asset allocation, we've, you know, we've increased our exposure to pure fixed interest. We reduced hybrids a little bit because they're floating rate back to about market weight. We're looking at equities. We're probably still a little bit underweight there. It's interesting. I think one of the best ways to describe what you were just discussing then in relation to the value in in the fixed interest is to take us back to say the late 80s where, um, you know, the official cash rate here was running at whatever it was, 15, 16, 17, 18%. And interest rates were a similar level that you could invest in. Now, why would you put money in to properties or equity when you can actually get that sort of return on um, government bonds. And so Mm. if you bring it back to today, when you compare what fixed interest is earning now compared to what you've got to get as a hurdle rate for equities, it just brings it, brings it home in a, in a clear perspective. When you're talking about those sort of returns, it makes for an extremely difficult hurdle rate to breach. So you actually said you were going, pushing further into longer dated, whereas PIMCO was suggesting based on what you uh, touched on previously, 
obviously that they were still wary of longer term. It'll be interesting to see who's right there. Yeah. Look, I, th- I think there's a couple of things there, Ben. I think one is they're sort of more beholden to the index. Obviously, they 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 were impacted uh, last year when you had that largest or second largest ever bond sell off, and you've never seen such high correlation before between equities and bonds, you know, both sold off. So they, they, they might be a little bit impacted by that. But also they're more focused on you, the US. And I think the scenario is a little bit different there. Remembering they've got that funny shape curve whereby a two-year rate's sort of three, 4%. I think it's about 4.2 at the moment, and and they have a lower sort of circa 3.55% 10-year bond. So you've got that inverse curve in the US sort of inferring a recession is to come. We don't actually have that in Australia. So I think the dynamics are a little bit different here. You know, hopefully we avoid a recession, but whatever the case, I think there's more of an argument to increase your interest rate duration in Australia vis-a-vis the US. And, you know, we probably are closer to the end of interest rate rises than they are. They've got all, you know, they've got a much bigger proportion of people on fixed rate mortgages over there. So they don't, and, and I don't think net number of vis-a-vis gearing over there is as high as, as it is in Australia. So I think types of forces mean that the impact of rate rises here has been far greater on the consumer. Good point. You and your fellow co-head of income, the great Steve Anagnos, run mm-hmm. the Sure and Partners hybrid portfolio, which is yep. a select bar basket of banking hybrid securities. First and foremost, can you give us a brief description of what the hybrids actually are? Yeah, look, they're an interesting um, interesting beast, the hybrids, and, you know, obviously a lot of publicity lately vis-a-vis um, Credit Suisse. Just in terms of why they exist, they're part of a bank's capital. So the bank banks are required to issue equity, obviously, additional tier one capital, which are hybrids, which just rank one notch above equity in the event of a, a liquidation. And then above that, the, um, the other type of capital is tier two subordinated debt, which is more like a bond. And um, so the difference between sub-debt and hybrids is that hybrids actually play in Australia a frank dividend. Now, that dividend is discretionary, but they've got to pay the full hybrid dividend if they're paying even one cent of an ordinary dividend on the shares. And even if they elect to not pay a dividend on the shares, they can still pay the full hybrid dividend if they so choose. And that's been the experience to date in the Aussie market. Not always the case in in the US. Subordinated debt's a little bit different again in that they actually pay a coupon and it's got a hard maturity. Hybrids have got a call date. And then if if they're not called at the call date, which they normally are, a couple of years after that, they mandatorily convert into $100 worth of shares. Um, Sub-debt typically is issued in the form of what's called, say, a 10 non-call five. So they've got a five-year call date, but if they're not called then in 10 years, they have a hard maturity and the coupon has to be paid. It can be deferred, but ultimately it's got to be paid. So, you know, as you as you move up the capital stack, it becomes more bond-like. And so the hybrid sits somewhere in between equity and bonds in terms of characteristics. And how do you determine the best value in the hybrid market given their floating rate notes and you've got yep. shorts and longs and, and different so, prices? Yeah, look, good question. Because they're listed in Australia and there's some pretty big advantages to that, it means you've got really good transparency and liquidity for smaller players because there's always sort of bids and offers in the screen, like a share price. So you can always say what the price is, but because you've got buyers and sellers all the time, sometimes some securities become a little bit cheaper than others. And you've all, because banks are always rolling and issuing these things, you've got all these different bits of paper to different call dates. So when they come and issue a new one, that's normally between, say, 
five and seven and a half years to the call date. But obviously, as time goes by, that call date becomes shorter and shorter. So you can effectively go out into the secondary market and buy anything between a one-year and a seven-year hybrid. So you, first things first, you decide, you know, do you want to buy, buy a major bank hybrid? Do you want to buy a regional, Challenger, AMP? A couple of others have got bits of paper out there too. We actually really have a preference for the major banks in that we just think they're, they're a more attractive risk-adjusted return. Also, they've got better liquidity in the screen. So you just decide, you know, look at a chart and what looks relatively cheap or expensive. Then you've got to decide on your view on credit spreads. So if you think things are going to get worse and people are going to demand a higher risk premium for anything they buy, you're probably better off buying shorter dated hybrids, which will be less impacted by movements in credit spreads. You know, because when you buy a shorter dated hybrid, you're closer to the call date and getting that $100 back. So you get this pull to par effect. So look, I've, I've hit you with a fair bit of jargon there. It's, it's complex, but in one sense, but in another sense, it's actually very simple. It's just using common sense about what looks relatively cheap or expensive. So as with my previous question about term deposit fixed interest investments, given uh, hybrids are floating, is there better value right now? You talked about the shorter and, and longer. Is there better value in longer dated or shorter dated hybrids? Look, at the moment, it's probably I'm probably neutral in terms of a preference for either. If you'd asked me a week or two ago, I would have said shorter dated. And for whatever reason, after the Credit Suisse experience, they, um, they got hit a little bit harder. For what reason, I'm not quite sure. They started looking relatively cheap and they have rebounded as they always do as a consequence. So mm. at the moment, probably pretty neutral on, you know, I'd probably have a balance of the two at the moment. Isn't that interesting? I, I would have expected the shortest to actually perform better than the longest, but I suppose maybe there are other factors like better liquidity or better pricing or, or something like that. So whilst we're at it, what, what is the difference between the high quality hybrid securities in which your SMA invests and the, you know, the Swiss-based credit Swiss hybrids that you referred to that were recently written off despite the fact that the shareholders or the equity investors who sit underneath the hybrids uh, in the capital structure were kept semi-whole. Yeah, look, it was it was an interesting dynamic. And in fact, it was only a couple of years ago that they sort of started issuing and introducing this new style of hybrid into, um, into Switzerland in relation to Credit Suisse. So where they really differed is that um, where you get an event where effectively a bank is being bailed out using taxpayers' monies or government money, that creates what we call a capital trigger event or, an, or sorry, a non-viability event in actual fact, um, whereby the bank's no longer viable and therefore, in the first instance, then needs to be converted into equity. Now, that's that's how it works in Australia. However, these particular hybrids didn't include that provision to be converted into equity. They were just immediately written down and not partially written down, 100% written down to zero. So, and look, you know, it's a wholesale market in Europe Frankly, the most of the buyers would have known, would have been aware of those terms, that that in the terms, and they were being paid additional margin for you know that aspect of the terms. But I think what really probably caught people out was there was actually another clause in the Credit Suisse paper that not everyone's not aware of because it wasn't actually a bailout. They were bought by UBS, and then the hybrids were written down. And the reason they were able to do that, and you couldn't have done it with Aussie hybrids, is they had a clause in there that said. If you get extraordinary government support, then the hybrids can be written down to zero. So we don't have this clause of extraordinary government support 
that's not actually, it's pretty grey. It's not actually a bailout. It's just the government offering more support than they normally would. So that's what happened. And they still, you know, obviously quickly over a weekend organised UBS to um, to do a scrip and cash bid for Credit Suisse's equity and wrote the hybrids down to zero. So massively beneficial for UBS, obviously, because they're, they're, they're getting all these assets for virtually nothing. But, you know, the, the only other jurisdiction where, um, because as soon as this happened, of course, people scoured the globe to try and work out what other hybrids might have these less investor-friendly terms in them. The other, only other place where it seemed like that was the case was Brazil, interestingly enough. Yeah, right. It's, it's such curiously, specifically termed, these, these issues. It, it certainly suggests that there was not an expectation but a fear that something like this was coming towards Credit Suisse anyway. And, and the fact that they were paying something like 9.75% on the hybrids when, you know, yeah. what are we getting, you know, threes and fours and that sort of thing here. It certainly did lead to the suggestion that I, you know, we the, the government knew that this this bank was in strife. The investors knew that this bank was in strife because you couldn't imagine that, you know, that terminology. What was it? Extraordinary government support. Yeah, because it's an immeasurable, an immeasurable thing, right? Well, what is extraordinary? Exactly. So yeah, I just find that interesting. But it certainly did spook a lot of people, and we saw we saw our hybrids slip off a bit, which you get you know, um, mm. after an event like this. But obviously the the quality and the strength is coming through and they're, and they're bouncing back up again. Thank you for that description. All right, so to, just moving to cash itself, what sort of economic environment should an investor have a larger exposure to cash than normal? Um, look, I think, you know, the thing with having a large exposure to cash is, first point I'd make is it, it, it does actually depend on your individual circumstances. And if you've got anything impending like a, property purchase coming up or something like that, or you just need a certain amount to live on. I guess from a more pure asset allocation perspective, when you've got real uncertainty with equities looking expensive and storm clouds gathering and so forth, then clearly it makes sense to be more defensive, which can which means a bigger allocation to cash. But of course, you know, it's a real balancing act because as soon as you do hold more cash, it, it can be a real drag in terms of uh, missing out on other investment returns. So I think, you know, there's probably a higher propensity to hold more cash at the moment, given cash rates. You know, you're actually getting paid something on your cash now. But, you know, I think for, for most people, that probably also means a bigger allocation to fixed interest. You know, they often get lumped in the, into a similar category. But I, I think, you know, let's not underestimate how important individual circumstances are in terms of how much cash you, you allocate. Uh, and so just on that, with the official cash rate rising here, uh, in Australia, to 3.6%. This has obviously created a higher hurdle for risk assets, you know, property, alternatives, equities mm. to breach uh, from a risk reward perspective. You mentioned earlier you were increasing your exposure to fixed interest. Has Have you noticed uh, money being redirected back from risk assets to fixed and floating rate securities recently? Yeah, look, I mean, the the, the data out there and, and certainly, you know, there's much better data in the US. I mean, there's been a real clear trend there in terms of money going into uh, fixed interest out of out of equities. You know, you can really see it in the ETF market. But um, yeah, we, we have seen, you know, it was interesting when the Credit Suisse situation happened because you had a knee-jerk reaction where everyone just panicked. Not everyone, but, you know, there, there, was, there was a few nervous Nellies that liquidated sort of the day or two afterwards. But then you had probably more sophisticated investors saying, you know what, actually, I'm pretty comfortable with the Aussie banks. I'm probably going to reduce my allocation to offshore exposures and bring the money back here and put it into 
fixed interest, including hybrids in Australia, because I, I know the Aussie banks, I'm comfortable with them, I'm comfortable with the regulator. That dynamic came into play. Yeah, definitely, definitely more allocation to uh, fixed interest given the interest rates you're earning now. So on that issue, if you were to look overseas, are there any, not that you guys are necessarily taking advantage of it, but do you, do you believe there's any interesting opportunities, uh, whether it be in the government bond market of certain countries overseas or certain country uh, corporate bonds? Is there, is there something that stands out of interest for you as far as a value proposition is concerned? We, frankly, we tend to stick to our knitting and, and, and really focus on the domestic market. There's always anomalies. You know, certainly I can tell you in the discussion that I was privy to yesterday, one market where people are a little bit concerned about having a fixed interest exposure is Japan, you know, because they've had the yield curve control there and they've sort of artificially kept rates low. Consensus view out there across fixed interest traders is that ultimately the BOJ will have to give up on that. So you, you could see rates on bonds elevate there. The US looks interesting because, you know, it wasn't so long ago that our rates were lower than the US. Now it's the other way around. So I think given that, you know, how dynamic the US economy is, where they are at in the cycle, versus us. The fact that you can get a higher yield in the US, that would be where I would uh, would suggest is, is, is an interesting opportunity. Um, Europe less so, because I just think there's so many structural issues going on there. And, you know, it's, 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 it's much more diverse and a moving feast and rates are lower. Mm. So you're getting these higher rates in the US in an economy that will probably recover quicker. Okay. To change tag a little bit, you were just touching on the US. The US is sitting on something like $32 trillion in debt. And there's a GDP of around, say, 23. So well under, under their debt pile. Let's say the average interest bill after the interest rate rises on that $32 trillion of debt is, let's just say, 3%. 3% of $32 trillion is about $1 trillion per annum and obviously rising. Over the next two months, the US politicians will conduct their usual histrionics as they argue about whether to extend the debt ceiling or not. They obviously will. But they'll argue until the death knock where concessions will be promised to the opposition, which is the Republicans, to allow it through. Putting aside my disdain for this pointless climax and drama, which they love to narcissistically create, we just have the wrong people in, in power there. Can they afford this ever-increasing debt bill? I know. It's a, it is an extraordinary situation. It's, it's hard, hard for us to comprehend it in the sense that because the US has almost got an unlimited ability to keep issuing US treasuries, particularly to China, it, it almost defies understanding the whole situation. But I guess inflation's probably helped them. I mean, they're, they're inflating their way out of the problem to some extent. Of course, the only issue is that the US dollars remain strong. So I don't know. I mean, to date, they've been able to afford it. Because as I say, they can always, it's the biggest, deepest liquid market, US treasuries, so they can continue to issue them. And, you know, because you've got such massive holdings from the likes of Japan and China and, and, and other big economies, you know, they've got a mark-to-market situation themselves there in terms of them owning so many US treasuries. So it's all globally interrelated. That's the thing. You get, like, I think it's hard to look at it in isolation, just in terms of the fact that the US has got trillions of uh, USD of debt, and you know, what did you say, 23 billion of GDP per annum. It, it, it's there's no real answer to the question. I don't, I don't think is what I'm saying. For, for mine, I mean, I, I like asking people like you about it who know more about this stuff than I. But they'll just keep going up and up and up until that yeah. point when the US dollar is no longer the global currency. But rightly point out that, you know, China are trying to set up these other trades with, with other currencies, including their own, so they can sort of divert this reliance on the US dollar. 
But at the end of the day, the Chinese are going to have to mark to mark their position in the in the US bonds anyway. It's such a bizarre scenario. I, yeah, I, I just find it really interesting that it's it's like watching a really slow train wreck, I suppose. Yeah, look, it's 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 almost a study in you know the rise and fall of superpowers too, and how all that plays out. Yeah, a lot of people are referring to the Ray Dalio book where he, he talks of the, the you know the collapse of the the US empire and the rise of the Chinese empire. But um, mm. a lot of these other areas have got their own issues as well. We've seen the Chinese demographics are changing. They've got um, less and less young people to support the older people, so the strength of their economy is declining. So everyone's got their own issues, but I was just curious on your Mm. response. Debt. So personally, I've always been terrified of debt, whether on my own balance sheet or the balance sheet of our investee companies. Yet on the other side of the coin, debt, which is obviously, you know, the other side of term deposits, hybrids, government bonds, whichever you like, they can obviously be a worthwhile investment. One thing that has surprised me is that here in Australia, we haven't seen the return of these government infrastructure bonds, which I think think are ingenious to fund the building of our country. Why do you think that is? Is it political? Is it because they're not worthwhile? What's what's the reasoning there? One one of the issues is, you know, they obviously keep changing the tax rules. And so the, the benefits to, as I understand it, to infrastructure bond investors diminished. So some of the take tax breaks there associated with that investment were diminished. And it's always been such a political football. Do you do an infrastructure bond on a statewide basis? And then you've got a sort of argy-bargy between, you know, tax receipt collection vis-a-vis the Commonwealth and the states. Uh, and I suspect, you know, the Commonwealth is probably happy to keep collecting tax from people on the top marginal rate maintain that status quo versus going out and issuing infrastructure bonds and giving them that tax break. So in other words, if the net receipts to the Commonwealth diminish as a consequence of, of going and issuing um, infrastructure bonds, they probably don't want to do it. So now it makes, as you, to your point, it does make a lot of sense because you're targeting a project, you're, you're incentivising private money to be invested in an infrastructure project. And infrastructure projects are a big thing for Australia, given our relatively small population, massive area. Like, you know, per head, it's incredibly costly, a costly proposition here. But I, I just think it's so political with all the, the tax side of it that that's probably why you haven't you haven't seen so many of those things of late. The last time we had a discussion about it was when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, really. That's, you that's know, what that's, I was going to say. It's not even discussed. Like, it, it, it doesn't nah. come up anywhere. So I, I think I think the conclusion has been that the government it's more efficient for them to just keep collecting tax at the top marginal rate off rather than giving the wealthy tax breaks. Cynically, yeah, probably, that's that, that, that's my perception. Well, I think a healthy healthy dose of cynicism in these sort of discussions is certainly appropriate. But you know the the, the concept of just putting the money aside to a particular project it funds itself they can get the money back or pay the um, pay the money back to the investors as the toll road collects and they take a royalty. And it just it just makes sense. But as you say, there's obviously rules within rules, which is what's stopping the whole process. Last question, what is the biggest risk with investing in fixed interest? Look, at the end of the day, there's always credit risk. You know, certainly when it comes to exposure to corporate bonds, I think you've got to be a little bit careful at the moment. Remembering that, and that's one of the reasons we've increased our weighting to government bonds and reduced our credit exposure. So government bonds are referred to as a risk-free asset because risk-free being government creditworthiness. And uh, the lower the rated the corporate you're investing in, the more risk of you not being repaid. And given 
pressures on companies at the moment in terms of higher interest rates and you know, we might see credit rationing from the banks. It, it's going to be harder to borrow money. I think it probably makes sense to focus on the high quality issuers at this point. So, you know, when you start talking about hybrids versus sub debt and so forth, you're talking about capital structure, but you're talking about the banks. And we quite like the banks at the moment. So we still like hybrids because banks have got more capital than, way more capital than they did coming into the GFC, way more. They've issued billions and billions in um, 20, 30, 40 billion in equity since then across the major banks and been designated globally systemically important banks, uh, domestically systemically important banks. So they're required to hold more capital than they used to. And that makes, as soon as you're holding more equity capital, it makes it a lot more safer for all the investors that sit above you in the capital structure. So we're comfortable with banks, we're comfortable with government debt, we're comfortable with good, highly rated companies that aren't too geared. But as soon as you start moving away from that, I think you've got to exercise a fair bit of caution. And, you know, we're seeing all these developers go broke at the moment. Um, obviously, interest rate pressure's there. You know, there's, there's, there's sort of a lot of signals out there, I would have thought, that just push you towards the quality end at this point, going into a lower growth environment. Great closing, Mr. Duncan. Thank you for your time. All right. Great to talk. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you to everyone for listening into this interview. If you've got any queries about this discussion or require any other information, please either call us on 9268 shoot us an email, or jump onto our website at morrisseygroup.net. Thank you. The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shaw and Partners Limited, ABN 24003-221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shawandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.